let's take our Bibles and turn over to Romans chapter number 8 in our Bibles this evening. The book of Romans chapter number 8. And we'll be reading a, a couple of verses there and then back in 1 Peter chapter number 1. Romans chapter 8 and 1 Peter chapter 1. And um, we're responding to a question this evening uh, on uh, some of our Sunday evenings. We have been uh, answering questions that have been posed to me by people here in the church. And uh, we've taken those questions. Still have uh, a few of them yet to come. Most of the questions deal with different aspects of theology. And these are questions that our church family has posed to me and asked me if I would uh, take some time on a Sunday evening to address these questions. And tonight we're addressing the question, what about Calvinism? What about Calvinism? And so we want to look this evening at understanding tulip theology. You know, church unity is really important. The Bible addresses church unity in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. uh, The church at Corinth was not united. They had uh, an absence of church unity in a number of areas uh, involving doctrine, involving practical matters of life, and involving morality. The church was divided. It was a problematic church. And so 1 Corinthians was written, and they were instructed that they needed to give some serious attention to unity in their church family. And uh, unity is always an important thing in a church family, and uh, doctrinal unity is important. Um, we have always had uh, people that have different perspectives or different views on the subject of Calvinism. Uh, I've sometimes said there are two kinds of people who believe that Calvinist theology is biblical and accurate. There are those who uh, believe that, uh, that God uh, only elected a certain number of people to get saved and only they can get saved. But since we don't know who they are, we need to witness to everybody. And, uh, and that's about the end of the discussion on Calvinism. That was the Calvinism that Charles Haddon Spurgeon embraced. And he was uh, attacked viciously by Calvinists in his lifetime for giving gospel invitations and preaching the gospel and preaching that whosoever believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And the Calvinists uh, of his day were very, um, uh, very harsh on Spurgeon for preaching of the gospel as if anyone could believe the gospel and be saved. And yet at the core, he believed that only the elect could be saved. There are other Calvinists who believe that God only elects certain people to salvation and only they can get saved, but it comes into every conversation. It's not only the, the foundation of their doctrine of soteriology or salvation, it also is the subject of many conversations, and sometimes they can uh, make it a life mission to try to uh, convince others that, uh, that don't agree with Calvinist theology, that they're inferior theologically and to try to convert that individual. Now, that's where division comes in. When someone uh, approaches uh, a belief like Calvinism with the idea that I'm on a mission to convert everyone else to my theological persuasion, that can cause division in a church family. And that is a very great concern with regards to preserving unity in a church family. And uh, the, um, the first kind of Calvinist never cause any problem. They go out on, on visitation. They give out, give out tracts. They, uh, uh, they believe that uh, everyone needs to hear the gospel. And, uh, and that's the, the uh, approach they take to life. And that is not problematic, but uh, the, the other kind sometimes is. It's important for, the, for a church family to have some level of understanding about this uh, subject of Calvinism because it has made a resurgence in 
uh, evangelical Christianity uh, here in the Western culture. And there are a lot of uh, very well-known Bible teachers, some of whom I have great respect for, uh, who believe very strongly in, in a Calvinistic approach. And, uh, and that, uh, that is growing amongst young preachers in, in America. And so it's important to be at least aware of uh, some of these things and have, a, uh, have an understanding. You know, Calvinism has always been an issue that has uh, separated or caused uh, division amongst Baptist people. We can go all the way back to England uh, back in the, uh, in the 1800s and before. And, uh, and there, there were, there were uh, Baptists that held to a Calvinistic perspective, and they were called the particular Baptists. Uh, they believed that God, that Christ only died for a particular group of people, the elect. And then there were other Baptists who were known historically as the general Baptists. They were those who believed Christ died generally for everybody and anybody can be saved. And so we can see way back in history that Calvinism is always uh, polarized or had the tendency of polarizing uh, Christians. And that is uh, very true in the in Baptist churches, as well as other types of churches, a man by the name of Adam Taylor wrote the history of the general Baptist in England back in the 1800s. And he's one of the only, um, if not the only, um, Baptist historian from that era that wrote about the general Baptist and himself was not a Calvinist. Most Baptist historians were of a Calvinist persuasion. And so most Baptist histories of England at that time uh, are a history of the particular Baptists. And so this has its way of influencing uh, churches, has had its way of influencing churches um, for, for a long, long time. And so this evening I want to take a huge subject that has been debated and argued and talked about for generations, and I want to uh, try to bring it into one message to kind of give some direction and... Um, and if you're interested, you, there's, there's, I can uh, make available to you material information to look into it further. Um, we certainly have material like that in the church bookstore and library for those who want to uh, study more deeply into the subject of uh, soteriology from a Calvinist and a non-Calvinist perspective. Now, I ask you to turn to Romans chapter 8 because this is the probably the, uh, the clearest uh, passage of Scripture that identifies the process of God saving a lost soul. Romans chapter 8, verse number 29, the Bible says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. Whom he called, then he also justified. Whom he justified, then he also glorified. This is a... A passage of Scripture that lays down a step-by-step process by which God saves a lost sinner. So, let's uh, look at that just briefly. Let's go to the next slide. And here we have the first step uh, of being able for God uh, saving a lost sinner. And the next slide, the first step is foreknowledge. Verse number uh, 28 said, for whom he did, or verse 29 said, for whom he did foreknow. Foreknowledge is the step, the beginning step, the foundational step in God saving a soul. Now, this passage doesn't, doesn't tell us what, foreknowledge, what God foreknew. What did He know beforehand, before it happened? But we do know that foreknowledge is the 
first step in the process of God saving an unsaved per, uh, person. The next slide is uh, the second step is predestination for whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate. Predestination is the second step in the process of salvation. But I want you to notice that predestination has nothing to do with who gets saved. It has to do with what God determines he's going to do in the life of the person who gets saved. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at the verse. Verse number 29. For whom he did foreknow them, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. He predetermined before he saved a person that when he saved that person whom he foreknew, that he was going to so work in their lives to shape them into the image of Jesus Christ and the character of their lives. He was going to transform them, make them a new creation in Christ Jesus, and he was going to conform them into the image of Jesus Christ. He determined that he was going to do that before he saved the person. That was his goal. That was his purpose. That's what he was saving them to accomplish in their lives. So the first step is he foreknew something, and then he predetermined that he was going to conform them to the image of Jesus Christ. And then the, the next statement, the next step in verse number 31, whom he also did predestinate, then he also called. And so the gospel call went out to those whom he foreknew, whom he purposed to conform to the image of Jesus Christ, and the gospel call went out to them, and he called them to salvation. And then he called them, he also justified. That's the moment of salvation. The gospel call went out, the invitation was given, a person responded to the gospel call, and God declared them just. Justification means that God as a judge declared them to be just as if they'd never sinned. Because Jesus took their guilt... And paid the eternal penalty of eternal death. And in its place, Jesus Christ gave to them his righteousness. And so Jesus Christ gave them the position of holiness or sinlessness. And God, in a declaration, declared them to be just as if they'd never sinned. And then, those whom he justified, then he also Glorified. And that's the final step, and that's when we step into the presence of God. This is the most concise, articulate process or place where God gives the process of how God saves a sinner. He foreknows something. On the basis of that foreknowledge, he makes a decision beforehand. But the decision is not who. The decision is what he's going to do in the life of those people. He's going to conform them to the image of Jesus Christ. How's he going to do that? He issues the call to come to Christ, and when they obey that call, he declares them to be just as if they'd never sinned. And having justified them, he will one day welcome them into his presence, and they will be glorified with a glorified body and a, and a totally transformed character. And, he will, and that unsaved person will stand before God uh, in, in glory for all of eternity. And so, this is the process and it begins with foreknowledge. Well, what is this foreknowledge? Go with me to another key passage, 1 Peter chapter 1. A second key passage that has to do with this thing of foreknowledge as a beginning step, as the first step in the process of God saving unsaved people. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse number 2, the Bible says that this portion of Scripture is being written to the elect 
according to the foreknowledge of God, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now notice, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. These people who God elects, He foreknew. Now the question is, which comes first? Does foreknowledge come first or does election come first? Now, the passage here says that, that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So foreknowledge dominates election. Elect according to. The words according to come from a preposition, which means down from or dominated by. We are the elect of God. He elected us to salvation. Only the elect are going to get saved. And the elect are going to be with God forever. But what dominated God's choice? Did God arbitrarily choose? I'm going to say you and you and you and you. And the rest of you uh, have no chance or opportunity uh, to benefit from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And therefore you will spend eternity in hell. Did God arbitrarily choose some according to his sovereignty of whom he chose to choose? And he left the others without any possibility of salvation? Was... Election primary. And then because he elected them, he foreknew them. If you look at the next slide, is it that election dominates foreknowledge? God elected. And then on the basis of God's sovereign choice in eternity past, God then knew who was going to be saved. So election dominates foreknowledge. But that's not what the Bible says. If we go back one slide again, the Bible says that God foreknew according to elect or, or, or God the election was according to the foreknowledge. The foreknowledge was primary. The election was down from and dominated by foreknowledge. Foreknowledge came first and then dominated by that foreknowledge, God chose to save those who got saved. And so foreknowledge was, was primary and election was caused by the foreknowledge. Now, there, those who are of a Calvinist persuasion have to explain this to make the election primary and make the foreknowledge dependent on election. That's not what the text says. So Calvinists will interpret the word foreknowledge to mean foreordain. They'll make the word foreknow to be foreordain. Which makes it the same thing as election. God ordained something to happen before it happened, and that's primary. And because he ordained it to happen before it happened, he then elected those who he foreordained to be saved. But that's not what the word foreknowledge means. Every uh, language scholar, uh, or, or the, the key language scholars seem to be consistent in identifying the word foreknow. It means Pre-knowledge, not pre-science. It means to know beforehand. It means to be aware of something before it happens. It doesn't mean to cause it to happen. It means to know it before it happened. And so God foreknew something, and on the basis of his foreknowledge, he elected those people unto salvation. So we're elected according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, those are the two key passages that, that really bring the issue down to something manageable, something that you can get a hold of. It all begins with foreknowledge in Romans 8. For whom he did foreknow, 
uh, or, or, uh, in, in Romans 8, God first uh, foreknew them and whom he fore, foreknew. Um, I've lost the, uh, the uh, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, whom he predestinated, then he also called, justified, and glorified. And, uh, and then the first Peter chap, uh, uh, verse addresses foreknowledge as the primary uh, mechanism that caused God to elect whom he elected. Now, we'll come back to that in just a few moments, but those are the two key passages, the two key concepts that uh, Calvinism in a non-Calvinist position kind of uh, grows out of. Let's, let's uh, address a, couple, a second subject and uh, the man that, um, that we look back to in history uh, that, uh, that brought uh, Calvinism as a system of theology into uh, reality. It begins with a man, and, and the, on your little worksheet it says Understanding Calvin. The, the first name you have there is, or first picture you have there is Augustine. Augustine lived in the 300s. Augustine was an interesting guy that had some really good things and some really dangerous things about his belief system. And, uh, and the system of Calvinism that Calvin embraced and really Calvin uh, brought into a system uh, came from the teachings and from the rudimentary beliefs of Augustine. Augustine had some strange beliefs. Augustine believed that Mary was without sin, that the Virgin Mary was, had ne- never did sin. She was without sin. Uh, Augustine believed that purgatory existed. There was an intermediate place between earth and heaven or earth and hell called purgatory. Augustine believed in infant baptism for salvation, that the way babies get saved is by baptizing them in their infancy. And Augustine believed that persecution was the right way to motivate people to make a decision to to be a Christian. That it is appropriate to evangelize with a sword. You either embrace Christ or you die. And Augustine believed that is a proper, right way to motivate people to embrace Christianity. Augustine, as you might well guess, Augustine provided, and, and it was in his lifetime, he's in the 300s to early 400s, that's the time frame that the Roman Catholic Church was formed in Europe. Augustine provided the theological basis for Roman Catholicism. Mary's without sin, there is a purgatory, uh, you get saved by Baptism, and that includes infant children, and the best way to make the Roman Empire Christian is to threaten with the sword, and that's how you evangelize. And so those were, were the, some of the foundational principles that, that surfaced in Catholicism, but they came from Augustinian, Augustinian belief. Now, these are just seed thoughts and seed beliefs at that era in time. It was many years later that a man by the name of John Calvin molded these into a system. You can see that John Calvin lived in the 1500s. So many years, thousand years plus after Augustine, August, uh, Augustine lived, John Calvin comes along. He's uh, born and lived in France and Switzerland at the age of 14. He began to study for the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church. But then, ten years later, he rejected the theological position of the Roman Catholic Church or some of their theology. And um, uh, John Calvin had an extensive writing ministry. He helped shape the union of the political state and the church of Rome 
to merge them into a political religious system in the country of Switzerland. And John Calvin is the one who brought the system of that we call Calvinism into a system. Now, what do we know about John Calvin? Well, we know that John Calvin was a persecutor. Like Augustine and like the Roman Catholic Church that developed out of Augustinian theology, who believed that the proper way to evangelize is with a Bible and a sword, except this or you get this. John Calvin was a persecutor. John Calvin was described as vicious toward his enemies, acting more like a devouring wolf than a harmless sheep. Historian William Jones said, quote, that the most hateful feature of popery adhered to Calvin through life, the spirit of persecution. Calvin persecuted those who did not believe in his system and his theology. Calvin said, this is Calvin's language. He was very caustic in his language. This is a quote from John Calvin speaking of his theological opponents. John Calvin said that all that filth and villainy, they're mad dogs who vomit their filth against the majesty of God and want to pervert all religion. Must they be spared? John Calvin hated the Anabaptists and, uh, and called them the, quote, henchmen of Satan. He had four men who disagreed with him theologically beheaded. He cut their bodies into four pieces and he hung their bodies around Geneva as a warning to anyone else. Don't oppose my theology. He was a persecutor. He burned Michael Servetus for his theological beliefs. Michael Servetus denied or rejected infant baptism as a means of salvation. Some, although it is not definitive, some some uh, have, have stated the opposite, but some have uh, stated that Michael Servetus also denied the deity of Christ. And that's the excuse for being uh, burnt, uh, being uh, put to death by, uh, under the instruction of, of John Calvin. John Calvin wrote about Michael Servetus, the guy that, 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 uh, uh, that he burned to death. Calvin said, quote, one should not be content with merely killing such people, but should burn them cruelly. Now, John Calvin was not a nice guy, as we would describe nice people who could discuss theological differences in a, in a reasonable manner. He was a very uh, controlling individual that persecuted as the Roman Catholic Church had persecuted those who didn't agree with him theologically. What else do we know about John Calvin? We know that he believed throughout his entire life in baby baptism for salvation. John Calvin in his Institutes number four said, quote, at whatever time we are baptized, we are washed and purified once for the whole of life. So the way you get washed from your sin one time for the whole of your life is by being baptized. Uh, in another place, in Institutes number four, he said, quote, by baptism, we are grafted into the body of Christ. Infants are to be baptized. Children of Christians, as they are immediately on their birth received by God as heirs of the covenant, are also to be admitted to baptism. So John Calvin provided a theology for reformation of the Catholic Church, a reformed Catholic Church. We call that Protestant Theology or Reformed Theology to this day. 
And John Calvin was one of the early leaders in the Protestant Reformation that produced a Reformed Catholicism uh, that was uh, different than the Catholic Church, but uh, many, many similarities. Here's a third subject, Calvin's theology, uh, theology, how it developed. Calvin's theology developed gradually. There was a man who had embraced the doctrines of Calvin by the name of Jacob Arminius. And you can see on the slide in front of you that he lived in the late, 16, late 1500s into the early 1600s. Jacobus Arminius was a, a student of John Calvin's theology and was actually dispatched at times to convince people who denied Calvin's theology that Calvin's theology was accurate. He was a defender of John Calvin's theology. And then Jacobus Arminius came to the point in his life where he could no longer believe that it was biblical, that it was accurate. So he began to deny a belief in John Calvin's theology. Jacobus Arminius, after his death, had followers that were called the Remonstrants. This next screen will give a list of the, the beliefs that they have. And you also have it on your uh, you don't have it listed on your worksheet, but uh, the remonstrants with the T.S. were people who followed Jacobus Arminius. The remonstrants with the C.E. is the list of their beliefs. And I believe this uh, next screen will give you the first of his beliefs. These are the beliefs of the followers of Jacob Arminius. Now, this is important in the theological development of Catholicism because Calvin's system was a reaction to their theological opponents, the followers of Jacobus Arminius. And here was their beliefs. And this was after Jacobus Arminius died when his followers uh, put his beliefs onto paper to be able to, uh, to teach others. The first belief was that election to salvation was based on foreseen faith. Now, we saw in First Peter Chapter 1, verse 3, that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. That foreknowledge is primary and election is according to, down from, or dominated by foreknowledge. Jacob was Arminius' followers in putting his beliefs onto paper said, number one, election to salvation was based on foreseen faith. Number two, that Christ died for all rather than only the elect. Jesus Christ died for all. The third one is that fallen man must be drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit. Fallen man cannot just uh, seek God. The Bible says there's none that seeketh after God. But rather, the Bible says that God seeks man and draws man unto himself. And Arminius believed that a fallen person must be drawn by the Spirit of God unto God for them to be saved. Number four, that God's grace can be resisted. You can, you can hear the gospel. You can be convicted of your sin. You can be drawn upon by the Spirit of God to believe the gospel, and you can resist that conviction. And then finally, that it is God's grace that perseveres, or that preserves, rather. It's God's grace that preserves you. Once you're saved, you're, you're kept saved, not by your own efforts, not by your own works. You're kept saved by God's grace. However, at the end of Jacob Arminius' life, he wasn't sure. It was a question mark in his understanding 
whether or not a person could be genuinely saved and then so fall from a devotion to Christ that he could, of his own will and accord, renounce Christ and be lost. Could a person be saved by the grace of God, be kept by the grace of God, but could he actually renounce Christ and not be saved? And when Jacob Arminius died, that was still a question mark. He did not know whether one could or not, whether an apostate could genuinely be saved and then fall from that grace. His later followers embraced that, and so Arminianism is best known today for the belief that you can lose your salvation. Now, extreme Arminians uh, believe that it's up to you to keep it. You've got to maintain your salvation through your own works and efforts, and if you backslide, you can lose your salvation and have to get saved all over again. Uh, that was not what Jacob as Arminius believed. That was a conclusion by later followers of Jesus Christ. Well, the, the followers of, of, of uh, Arminius put these, these beliefs on paper, and then in the early 1600s, there was a political uh, convergence of, uh, of leaders to be able to discuss these points of Arminius' belief. It occurred in Holland in the, uh, in the town of Dort, and it's called the Synod of Dort. It occurred in Holland in 1618 to 1619. It was a long uh, convergence of uh, leaders to, uh, to analyze and determine whether the followers of Jacob Arminius are apostates, heretics, or whether or not uh, their theological perspectives could stand. Uh, the result of the Synod was the rejection of the beliefs of Jacobus Arminius' followers, and the, uh, the Synod of Dort then took the remonstrance, those five theological statements from Jacob Arminius' followers, they took that and they used that as a structure upon which to build their own theological perspective, which has been commonly called and is well known today as tulip theology. Tulip theology. And tulip theology is simply the, the opponents of Jacobus Arminius' followers stating in their theological perspective what is their understanding of these, of these beliefs. Now, I must say that the result of the Synod of Dort was not a happy result. Um, the followers of Arminius immediately fell under persecution. 200 pastors lost their churches because of their beliefs. Uh, John Van Olden Bernvelt was beheaded for his, uh, being an opponent of Calvin's theology. Hugo Grotius was imprisoned. And many of the followers of Arminius known as Arminians, had to flee Holland for their lives because the Synod of Dort declared their theological beliefs to be heresy and they fell under severe persecution for their beliefs and they had to flee Holland. Now, what were these, these beliefs? The tulip Calvinism. Uh, the T stands for total depravity. And by that is the understand. Understanding that a lost person is so depraved 
so sinful that they are morally bankrupt of not only the the reality of sin, but the ability to respond to God, that they are totally depraved and cannot believe the gospel. That which caused uh, the uh, causes many people who embrace Calvinism based on total depravity is the concept of spiritual death, that I'm dead in sins. The Bible says we're dead in sins. And the thing that Calvinism proponents suggest is that a dead person can't respond. And they'll show artwork of a corpse in a coffin. You can go to the corpse in the coffin. You can tickle their nose with a feather and the corpse won't even move. You can tell them to come and eat and offer them their favorite foods. And the corpse won't move. That something that is dead cannot respond. And the idea of spiritual death as leaving a person totally depraved, which it does, but then defined as meaning that they are dead in sin and therefore cannot respond to God when God addresses their sin. Dead to sin. John, uh, John MacArthur used to be an opponent of Calvinism. I have in my library his commentary on Matthew in which he states that Jesus Christ did not die for merely the elect, but he died for the sins of the whole world. And he defended that in his Gospel of Matthew. It's probably been corrected in the editions that are for sale now, I would assume. But my edition, he was a, a, a proponent of Calvinist theology. I've heard John MacArthur explain what caused him to change his opinion of Calvinism. And what caused John MacArthur to change his opinion of Calvinism was the idea of spiritual death, that a person spiritually dead cannot respond to God. Therefore, God has to save them first. And that results in a Calvinistic understanding of who is saved and who's not saved. Now, the, the question, obvious question is, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? What is spiritual death? And uh, some have said it in a succinct way by saying, are you dead like Lazarus was dead? Or are you dead like the prodigal son was dead? Jesus Christ said both of them, each of them were dead. Lazarus had been dead for four days. And, and God had to raise him from the dead before he could walk out of that tomb. Don't, don't get him out of that tomb. It's, it's, he stinks. He's been dead for four days. He was dead and could not respond. Is that what spiritual death is? It leaves a person in such a state that, that they cannot respond to God's wooing, to God's conviction? Or are they dead like the prodigal son was dead? Now, the prodigal son was a story Jesus told about the salvation of sinners. The whole chapter, Luke 15, is about the salvation of sinners. And the Bible says that the prodigal son was dead when he was in the far country. The father said... My son, which was dead, is alive again. Why shouldn't I rejoice? Now, when you read the story of the prodigal son, Jesus said when he was in the far country feeding the pigs, the Bible says he came to himself and said, and he began to reason with himself, what am I doing? My father's servants live better than I live. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against you. Could I become your servant? You know the story. Well, 
when he was in the far country, separated from his father, in the picture of unsaved spiritual death, because the father ended up saying in Jesus' story that the son was dead, yet he was able to come to himself. He was able to respond. He was able to feel the guilt of who he was and where he was. So, is spiritual death a state of separation from God that still leaves a person capable of hearing the Spirit of God and responding to God's conviction work, convicting work? Well, the, the idea of, of total depravity as understood by the Calvinist does not allow that. Even though the Bible says that God enables men to respond. He gives them light, John 1, 9. He draws them, John 12, 32. He convicts them, John 16, 8. He calls them through the gospel, Mark 16, 15, uh, and 2 Thessalonians 2. And he commands them to repent in Acts 17 and believe on Christ in Acts 16. Over and over again, God tells unsaved people to respond to him. So the T is for total depravity. Uh, the, the others I won't comment on further than just a word of explanation. The second one is unconditional election, that God, that Jesus on the cry, on the, on the, uh, that God, I'm sorry, God elected or selected those who were going to be saved unconditionally to anything else, unconditional to anything else. God arbitrarily chose who he was going to elect and who he was going to leave without any hope or chance or opportunity to repent. And God made that election unconditionally, not based on anything. Other than his sovereign will. Number three, limited atonement. The L of tulip stands for limited atonement. That Jesus only died for the ones that are elect. And so all those that are not elect will have no opportunity to be saved. Number four is irresistible grace. Uh, that if you are elect, you cannot resist the grace of God. When you hear the gospel, you will respond. And you cannot resist that. Because God elected you to salvation. And so you will get saved. And then number five, the perseverance of the saints is the idea that those who are elect, who are saved irresistibly, those people will persevere unto the end. They will be saved eternally. They cannot lose their salvation. So these were the five points. You can line them up and compare them to the remonstrance, and you can see that the proponents of Calvinism were responding to the uh, stated beliefs of the followers of Jacobism. Jacob Arminius. Let's go to number four, the fourth subject there on your little worksheet. And uh, let's uh, uh, look on in wrapping this up um, and uh, throw out some, some strange results of Calvinism uh, that would be strange from my perspective. One of the strange results of Calvinism is that the new birth precedes faith. The new birth precedes repentance and faith. You see, the Calvinists say you cannot believe in Christ until after God saves you. You cannot Repent of your sin until after God saves you. And that's reasonable and logical if spiritual death, if total depravity means you're like a corpse that can't respond. Life has to be breathed into you. You have to be made alive before you can hear God and respond to him. And so regeneration must precede justification. Regeneration is the aspect of salvation by which God makes you alive again. He breathes spiritual life into you. And you are born again. You're made alive in Christ. And the Calvinist believes that that, that has to occur before you can repent 
and before you can believe in Jesus Christ. A.W. Pink, a well-known um, Calvinist from a bygone day in his book, The Sovereignty of God, said, and I quote, Faith is not the cause of the new birth, but the consequence of it. Faith in Christ is the consequence of having been born again. It's not the cause of being born again. Uh, Lorraine Bettner, another uh, well-known Calvinist in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, said, and I quote, we have, we have nothing to do with our spiritual birth. It occurred without our consent being asked. If any person believes, it is because God has quickened him. And if any person fails to believe, it is because God has withheld that grace. The soul dead in sin is first transferred to spiritual life and then exercises faith and repentance. This is one of the strangest um, results of Calvinist uh, belief in my way of thinking, because over and over again we read in the Bible a different order. Uh, and one of the most uh, glaring ones to me, and, and I've got several written down in front of me, but uh, d- for the sake of time, uh, the one that kind of jumps off the page more to me than any other is the salvation of the Philippian jailer. Because he asked point blank, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answered, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, if Paul was a Calvinist, Paul would have likely said, be saved and thou shalt believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If it's true that an unsaved person doesn't have the capability of believing in Christ until after God saves them, Then Paul should have told him, you don't have to do anything. What must I do to be saved? Not a thing. Just sit there, and if you're elect, God's going to save you. And if he saves you, then you'll be able to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not what Paul said to the Philippian jailer. When he said, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe. And what will be the result of that belief? Thou shalt be saved. And so it's a strange idea That regeneration has to occur without our being asked, without our being consulted, without being convicted, without being drawn, without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, without anything. We just have to be saved by God's sovereign act. And once he saves us, then we'll be able to repent of our sins and believe on Jesus Christ. That is strange when you read the Bible at face value and look at what the Bible says about salvation. That is a strange belief. Second, uh, what I consider to be a strange uh, result of Calvinism is the idea that faith is a work. Calvinists will often say that if you put your faith in Christ, that was a work. That was an effort on your part. You're therefore saved by works because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And yet the Bible tells us very clearly in Ephesians that faith is not a work. That we're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is not a, 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 a work. We're saved by the grace of God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And that has nothing to do with working for our salvation. I consider that to be a strange belief that faith has become a work. If you, believe, if you don't believe in Calvinism, you believe in faith's, faith works salvation. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that faith is the mechanism whereby salvation comes to us, that it's not a work. And then a third uh, 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 strange um, 
result of Calvinism has to do with missions. Calvinists historically were the opponents of worldwide evangelism. One of the uh, best known examples of that occurred when William Carey was trying to garner support from the Baptists in, in England, in, in the British Isles, to support him in his work of taking the gospel uh, to Asia. And, and uh, it was uh, Thomas Armitage tells the story that when William Carey's uh, writing was uh, you know, the inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use the uh, to use means for the conversion of the heathen. William Carey wrote a document saying we are obligated to use our finances to evangelize the lost, the heathen. And the tract was published in 1792. Uh, and uh, to most of the Baptists, his views were visionary and even wild, uh, Thomas Armitage wrote. Because they were viewed to be in open conflict with God's sovereignty. At a meeting of ministers where the senior Ryland presided, Carey proposed that at the next meeting they discuss the duty of attempting to spread the gospel amongst the heathen. Ryland, shocked, sprang to his feet and ordered Carey to sit down saying, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Now, not every Calvinist is like that, but that is a, that is a, a, a strange uh, idea Strange to the New Testament, strange to the Bible that has um, been embraced by those that are extreme Calvinists that don't believe we have any obligation to witness or to give out the gospel because whoever God elected, they're going to get saved no matter what you do or don't do. And so we'll just leave it to God's sovereignty and he'll save who he wants without your help or my help. That is not believed by all Calvinists by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, John Piper is one of the foremost Calvinists of today and he's been a leader, a leading proponent of, of Worldwide missionary activity. But that is a, a historically a strange idea that uh, seems to have come from an extreme Calvinist position. A fourth strange result, I'm sorry, a, um, another strange result of, um, of uh, Calvinism is the inviting of the lost to come to Christ. I mentioned earlier that Spurgeon was, um, was described by Ian Murray in his book, uh, Spurgeon and the Hyper-Calvinist as being opposed by the Calvinists of his day. One Calvinist publication in Spurgeon's day said, and I quote, to preach that it is the man's duty to believe savingly in Christ is absurd. To preach that it is man's duty to believe savingly in Christ is absurd. You can't believe because you're dead. God's got to save you first before you believe. It's absurd to preach as if you can believe in Christ and be saved. That was... Uh, uh, Ian Murray writing about the historical situation that was written, by the way, in an, in an article called The Earthen Vessel in 1857. Final subject, a couple of things and we're done. Calvin is some, you know, why would a person, why would I, as a as a preacher, as a student of the word of God, why would I reject Calvinism? Uh, I reject Calvinism as a system of theology for a few reasons. Number one, because Calvinism rejects the simplicity of God's foreknowledge. The Bible is very clear that God's choice of who gets saved is dominated and controlled by his foreknowledge. Foreknowledge in what? What did God foreknow? He did not explain it in the context of 1 Peter chapter 1. There is one verse that 
sheds a little bit of light on it, but it does not state it definitively, but it sheds a little light on it. And that's John 6:64, where the Bible says, But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Speaking of Judas, the Bible said God knew before. He didn't cause it. He didn't elect Judas to it. The Bible says that he knew from the beginning who would betray him. What is foreknowledge? What did God foreknow? Well, all the way back to the followers of Jacob Arminius, it was a simple understanding, belief, that God foreknew that when an unsaved person, under the convicting power of the Spirit of God, being drawn to Christ by the conviction of the Spirit of God, whether they would repent and believe or whether they would reject. And on the basis of God's foreknowledge, he elected to save those whom he knew would believe. That's, of course, the position of the non-Calvinist. And by the way, this idea of foreknowledge, back where we started a few moments ago from 1 Peter chapter 1, I've got, uh, what, four quotes. I think all of them, not, not all of them, some of them are from um, people of a Calvinist uh, perspective, uh, Presbyterian and so forth, uh, that define foreknowledge the word, the Greek word translated foreknowledge as not having anything to do with decision, but it's only knowledge beforehand, not causation. Not that God caused them and therefore elected them, or he elected them because he had forecaused them to believe, but that it is simple knowledge before it occurred. God foreknew. And on the basis of his foreknowledge, he elected them unto salvation. And then I would not be a proponent of, of Calvinism because Calvinism forces some preconceived ideas into the Bible. There's a number of scriptures here that I would have turned to in John, Acts, um, pertaining to statements of God's saving and, and the, the forcing of preconceived of ideas of a sovereign determination to cause a person to be saved by sovereign choice does not come out of the passage, but it's read into the passage for it to fit into a theological perspective. At the end of the day, the conclusion, I would say, is that the things boiled down to two concepts of the character of God. One is the sovereignty of God, and the other is the love of God. I asked a Calvinist uh, who um, was young in his faith, uh, been saved like two, three years, and had embraced Calvinism as a result of a lot of intense study under men that were um, strong Catholic uh, um, Calvinistic teachers, and, and I asked him uh, about the sovereignty of God, because the sovereignty of God seems to be, from a Calvinist perspective, it is the foundation of the issue. Is God sovereign? And I asked the individual, could God, if God had chosen to do so, could God have designed a salvation that was available to every fallen creature 
And could God have provided the payment of that salvation for everyone, whether they believe or don't believe, through Christ's death on the Calvary? Could God have designed that if he wanted to? And the person immediately shot back and said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. God is sovereign. I said, now listen to what you just said. Because I believe in the sovereignty of God more than you do. Because I believe God, as a sovereign God, could design a salvation the way he wanted to design it. And you're convinced that God had to do it the way you believe it was done. And couldn't have done anything else. Therefore, I believe in the sovereignty of God to a much higher plane than you believe in the sovereignty of God. Could God? Yes, he could. Then the question is, when I read and study my Bible, what did God do? The second foundation of the issue is love. Does God love his creation? Does God love every human being? That's why David Hunt entitled his book, Opposing Calvinism, by the title, What Love Is This? You you tell me, you tell me that a person who comes up on a pond and there's three little boys drowning in that pond and and you decided to throw a a, a rope to one of them and, and pull him to safety and you looked at the others and said, you guys are trespassing. You should have known better. You're getting what you deserve. And he turns around and walks away and allows them to drown because they were trespassing and broke the law. Now, if someone did that, could you with a straight face tell me that that man loved each of those boys equally? That he loved the one he saved? And he said to the other two, your death will uphold the rightness of the law that says thou shalt not trespass. Does he really love each one of them? And the conclusion from a Calvinist perspective is that no, God doesn't love everybody. God loves the ones that he elected. The others he does not love in the same way, to the same degree, or with what you could consider to be love. And therefore, John 3.16 does not mean God, for God so loved the world. It means for God so loved the elect. He doesn't love the people who he elected or, or that he sovereignly chose not to elect and left them to die a just judgment under his law. You can't say he loves them. And he loves them equally. The foundation issue is how you believe in the sovereignty of God and how you believe in the love of God. Personally, I believe that that God loves everybody and that Jesus provided salvation for everybody. And for those who hear the gospel, he convicts them of their sin and draws them to Christ. As Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And everyone can be saved under the convicting power of the Spirit of God. God loves them each individually.